Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Seth Stevens Davidowitz. He's a data scientist, economist, and an author. Imagine if you had access to millions of data points which tell you exactly what makes people happy, or makes people attracted to you, or what actually influences your child's outcomes in life, or the most reliable way to become rich. Well, Seth did, and then he wrote a book about it with all of his findings in. Expect to learn how you can conduct a survey to test different appearance styles to find out which is the best for you, which personality traits result in the happiest relationships, what activities will make you the most and least happy, the secret industries of people who become rich in America, how to hack luck using data, and much more. This episode is absolutely awesome. I love when people find a way to cut through all of the rhetoric and stories and narrative and just give you the data, just tells you what you need to do. You want to be happy? These are the things you should do and these are the things you should avoid. You want to be attractive? You want to find a partner that you're going to love for a while? You want to become rich? You want to become famous? This is what people who have done it did. And you can take that as you wish. It's so cool. The book is awesome. If you enjoyed it, it's linked in the show notes below. Don't trust your gut. Go and buy it. Seth's a great guy. And uh, this, this book's phenomenal. In other news, this episode is brought to you by Wondrium. Wondrium is a subscription video service with content on just about any topic. You can explore audio and video courses on hundreds of topics taught by university professors. There's documentaries to help you learn more about the world around you, and you can find video tutorials that will teach you new hobbies like photography, cooking, crafting, and health and fitness. All of Wondrium's content is world-class and credible. It's presented by experts who all know their stuff, and it is always ad-free. There are thousands and thousands of videos, including courses, documentaries, tutorials, and more, and you get access to all of those completely free for two weeks. You can join thousands of other people on Wondrium. They've collaborated with some of the best documentary and course creators like The Great Courses, Magellan, and Intelligence Squared to provide learning experiences that you can't get anywhere else, and you can get a free two-week trial. All that you need to do is go to wondrium.com slash modernwisdom. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash modernwisdom. You will get that free trial for 14 days. And then if you want to stick about after that, you'll get 20% off the annual plan. Wondrium.com slash modernwisdom. In other, other news, this episode is brought to you by upgraded formulas. You might be tired and don't know why. You might not be feeling 100% yourself. You can identify your deficiencies and learn exactly what your body needs with a hair test. You can say goodbye to painful blood draws and messy urine tests. Blood and urine typically indicate short-term results, while hair is the best identifier of tissue mineral status and heavy metal toxicity. And this is exactly what upgraded formulas offers. You can get all sorts of different tests, key minerals, heavy metals, your metabolism, your hormone levels, thyroid function, adrenal function, and even your immune function. All of this is done by collecting a hair sample. Apparently, collecting your hair on your head is is the ideal location, but pubic hair and underarm hair is also satisfactory. Um, If you want to just have the thrill of posting your pubic hair somewhere. You could also do that. You send the sample and they will provide you with a prepaid shipping label that has shipping tracking all on it. The lab will receive the results. They're processed by physician-approved and certified lab. Once the results are processed, they then email via a secure server And if you want to, you can get an upgraded certified nutritionist to help interpret your test results and give you an actionable plan to improve your supplementation and diet. 
Head to upgradedformulas.com and use the code MW15 at checkout to save 15% on your first purchase. It's less than 50 pounds or 50 bucks to get this test done. There is no reason not to do it. Upgradedformulas.com and MW15 at checkout. And in final news, this episode is brought to you by Element. I am out here in Guatemala at the moment and I don't have my Element sticks with me and it means that I'm sad. I'm definitely feeling less awake and more irritable and more tired throughout the day because my hydration isn't as optimized. You should begin your day with salt in water rather than a coffee. Wait 90 minutes until you have your first coffee. An element is a science-backed electrolyte ratio of potassium, magnesium, and sodium. This plays a critical role in reducing muscle cramps and fatigue whilst optimizing brain health, regulating appetite, and curbing cravings. Elements is the exclusive hydration partner to Team USA weightlifting and relied on by tons of Olympic athletes, high performers in the NFL, NBA, NHL, special forces, Navy SEAL teams, FBI sniper teams, and Marines, plus tech leaders and everyday athletes around the world. It is the best way to start your morning, and you can get a free sample pack when you buy any box. So go to drinklmnt.com slash modernwisdom, pick whichever box flavor you want, and you'll get a free sample pack with all eight flavors on top of that. Plus, they have a no BS, no questions asked refund policy, and you do not need to even return the product. That's how confident they are that you'll love it. Head to drinklmnt.com slash modernwisdom. But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Seth Stevens-Davidowitz. Dude, your new book is absolutely awesome. This is this is what people want, someone that has access to loads of data to actually come up with and do. It's like, look, just just tell me how I'm supposed to live my life, please. Can you just give me the money ball for my existence? That would be great. Thank you. Yeah, that was the motivation for the book is that I le- it's legitimately the book I wanted to read because I'm obsessed with self-help. Like it's a little embarrassing because I'm supposed to be such an intellectual and my my bookshelves are just filled with self-help, like how to get more powerful when I was single, how to date better, how to be happier, how to whatever. And I'm so frustrated because I read all these books and I'm like, I just don't believe, I'm like, this isn't really based on very much. You just like had an idea and you just told me it's not like up to the rigorous standards that I'd come to expect from, uh, you know, data analysis. So I'm kind of just like, okay, what would actually be like, what if you just explored all the areas of life and just said what the data tells you on it. And like, you, you know, like, uh, I've also noticed that a lot of self-help books, when they say they're evidence-based or like science-based, somebody just has a point they wanna make and they just Google some study that confirms it. And like, that's not how I wrote this book. I literally had no idea what I was saying on any of these topics. I'm like, I don't know what I'm saying about dating. I don't know what I'm saying about entrepreneurship. I don't know what I'm saying about happiness. And I'm just like gonna find the best studies and the best data and the best whatever, and then like, here uh that's what i'm saying now so yeah it does make other books feel uh in inconsistent and insubstantial you're like hang on a second what 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 did you say you just told me a nice story Like this is just <laughs> it's just a story that happens to fit some eat pray love narrative that sounds nice i think it's right i thought i think it's also a misconception 
that people just want to read stories. Like that's kind of a, a an idea that they tell authors, you know, you just tell stories, tell stories, tell stories. And like everybody who's read my book so far, which I'm just going to say that you're supposed to say the name a lot. Don't trust your gut. Some people remember it. But uh, everyone who's read my book has been like, I've been enthralled by the tables and the charts, uh, which is like not again, that's not usually what you put in self-help books like tables and charts dude seduced uh, by a nice bar chart that's what that's what people yeah, needed I think, needed I more think people of. are like people are like coming back with like very subtle points like the you know uh, the, where i'm like wow the closest everybody was reading the book was actually the tables and charts and and, and figures and i'm like oh uh, i think i think there were misconceptions about like the sell about the audience for books and what they actually want and i think people do want things that are a little meatier and a little more substantial and like a little more, you know, data driven. So I think a big reason for that is because it is quite counter to much of what gets put out there. There's a guy called Stephen Kotler who runs the Flow Research Collective, and he looks at the um, science of getting your body into a flow state. But he looks at it from a biological level, right? This yeah. isn't a philosophical level. This isn't how it contributes to your meaning. It's what is the actual brainwave state you're supposed to be in? What does this mean for your heart rate? What does this mean for your respiratory rate? What does this mean for your average body temperature? What are the exercises and the strategies that you can do to influence yourself to move you toward that? So, and you're like, it felt meaty is a really nice way to put it. You're reading this book and you're like, yeah, there's something firm for me to press up against here. And I think, yeah. that, I, I think that finding something firm as in the data is a, a good place to, to look. So you decided off the back of said book to do a nerdy makeover a data-driven oh, yeah. makeover i'm not following the advice though because uh i'm too i'm, I'm nearsighted which i well, near side is that you can't see far away so yeah so i did this analysis there's all this evidence i didn't know about it until i started researching this book on how much your looks influence your success in life uh so like it's really depressing and dark like they show pictures of two candidates, uh, you know, gubernatorial election, Senate candidates, and they're like, which one looks more competent? And this research by this guy, Alex Todorov and others, and 70% of the elections they can predict just just based on the, the candidate who said, people said look more competent wins. And it's just like, that is so depressing. Like, what, like we're all in high school, basically. We can't, we've never escaped high school. And then he's done studies like, who rise to the top of the military? It's people who just look dominant. And they're like, oh, th th there have been studies that baby, that uh, people who look baby faced, like are more likely to get off their crime, like not be convicted of the crime. You're kidding me. I was just like, no, yeah, no, not, come on, not that guy. <laughs> like, I'm, and I'm just like, are you kidding me? We are, I, I was reading this, I was getting like angrier and angrier. But then I'm like, wait a second, there was this other study where they said that the same person can be rated very differently based on like little changes they make. So I'm like, wait a second, instead of just whining about how like, you know, unfair it is, you gotta take advantage of this. You gotta like find your best look. And I I use this tool, uh, yeah, it's a, the nerd, <laughs> probably the world's nerdiest makeover. Uh, Face app is this like app, everyone can play around with it. You can kind of change around what happens when I have glasses, what happens when I have long hair, what happens when I have a beard, what happens when I have a mustache, goatee, you can just change everything about you. And then I ask people to rate like how I look, how competent I looked in these different things. I use this service. The best way to do it now is a site I didn't know about, photofeeler.com. Anyone could do this. Like you can just match what I did. So you go to FaceApp, you create different versions of yourself. You go to photofeeler.com 
and you can get ratings on them on how you look on various dimensions. And then for me, there were these like really clear patterns that everyone rated me way more competent when I had a beard and had glasses. Uh, and it was just like stark. It was like striking the glass and anything else, striking the day and everything else I did did matter. Like uh, you can add like a, a smile, uh, different smiles, no difference, different types of glasses, no real difference. Like uh, even when I shaved my head, it wasn't even that much worse, uh, which I may be heading towards because I'm going bald. Uh, so, I, so that was encouraging. I'm like, thank God. I'm like, what if I'm like a six on confidence and then with the shaved head, I'm like a two. Um, then I'm really screwed because baldness is coming fast for me. Uh, so, or I guess if I, based on that, then I would have gotten like a hair transplant, I guess. Uh, but I'm just like, oh, there are these two things, glasses and beard, and they're just the huge difference makers for me. Why uh, so did now, you want like, to? Why did you want to optimize for competence? Well, <laughs> I say because like, a, I, I I tested a few of them and they were all they're all pretty highly correlated. So like, I said now that I'm happily in a relationship, if I was single, I'd go attractiveness 100. percent I think I didn't go for attractiveness too because I was too scared of the results. I'm like, what happens if I put it in there and everyone's like, you're 0 0.1. I'm like, oh God, <laughs> I'm going to really get in my head. <laughs> Whereas like I'm confident, maybe like I'll do a little better. I look a little nerdy. Everyone will be like, you're, you're confident. But I think, uh, you know, I, I did, I focused on confidence more because I'm in a, a happily in a relationship. I feel like I don't really need to win over, you know, people with attractiveness. And then I was talking to someone, uh, Stephen Levitt, the co-author of Freakonomics, and I told him this, and he's like, no, 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 that is your first mistake. You always need to keep the attractiveness high if you're a partner. <laughs> uh, don't get, don't, don't get, uh, you know, lazy on the attractiveness front just because you're in a relationship. Uh, but it was like, it was, it's very clear data. I really think everyone can do this. Like initially, I had to use these tools because I didn't know about Photo Feeler. I just found out about that recently. But literally, FaceApp plus Photo Feeler, anybody could do what I did, like really, really simply. And Photo Feeler also does a whole bunch of different traits. So they do competence and smart and like all kinds of different things. You get it back really quickly. So I bet you everybody will find out these little things like I did. Like it's just beard and glasses are like the game changers. Oh, you think that's for, for everybody so. that all of the women should have beard and glasses as well? That's just a no, universal no, no. panacea across the board that every woman get no, yourself no, a beard. <laughs> no, I think the point is that it's like the point is they're obviously going to be individual variation. That's why you got to do the study. So there are some people that are going to do well. You know, I think glasses on, and competence may be pretty close to universal. Uh, we are just so tricked by glasses. Uh, and like everybody just looks smarter when they have a pair of glasses on. Uh, but, uh, you know, but like beard, I think there's something about my face that I think is just like. A beard, like, kind of, I have, like, a full mouth. I think a beard kind of covers it. There are some, like, men particularly that beards are just, like, very good on. Like, James Harden, the basketball player. I'm always like, why does this guy have this crazy beard? And then I saw pictures before he had a beard, and he's, like, missing a chin. And Dude, like, oh. have you seen, do you know Kazmat Chemaev? Do you know who that is? No. Uh, so know. he is one of these, he's an absolute animal in the middleweight division in the UFC. And this guy is, there's multiple series of videos talking about how he's a legitimate psychopath on YouTube with and he's like everyone loves him for the fact that he's just ready to go at all times and if you want to go and have a laugh google Kazmat Chimaev without a beard and it is he is missing a chin there is no chin there it is it is simply a beard <laughs> yeah. growing out from his neck 
And you're like, fuck, dude. He's so much more intimidating with a beard than without one. So he's optimizing for intimidation. You were optimizing for competence. Competence. Absolutely but fine. When I did attractiveness, beard was got me a higher score as well. So I think they're, they're, competence and attractiveness are very highly correlated. Uh, usually the things... Usually, like, a look is better on, on like, every front. It's not like there's you're, – you're usually not trading off, like, you know, one or the other. Usually, like, there's a look for you. I think it's pretty clear that glasses and, and beard is my, uh, is my look. Uh, so. What were the big lessons that you learned from data about being successful in dating then? <laughs> uh, there are, like, a lot of different lessons. Uh, there are, okay, so one of them is from – I, I love this. People may have heard of it, but I, if you haven't, you need to know it. Uh, Christian Rudder wrote this excellent book, Dataclism, and he made the point that the most successful daters are like the, – the, the very most successful daters are exactly who you'd expect. They're like Brad Pitt and Natalie Portman, just beautiful people, and they just get like – it's depressing how much better they do than the average person. Uh, like, uh, but then like there are, these, there are these daters that do shockingly well, and they're people with extreme looks. Like people who shave their head, like heterosexual women who shave their head or have crazy glasses or blue hair or all these things. And the point is, in dating, you want to be polarizing. So if you're Brad Pitt or Natalie Portman, you just want to be yourself and not scare anybody. Just like play it very safe. Let the goodies flood to you. But if you are not Natalie Portman or Brad Pitt or you're not like conventionally the most attractive person, you got to kind of lean into some extreme version of yourself and then some people will be totally turned off but some people will be really into you and that's kind of what's that's all that matters you just need some people to be really into you and i kind of did that in my own life because i think it's not going to surprise anybody that like i'm pretty nerdy i mean anybody read don't trust your gut would be like this guy's pretty nerdy like uh there's this one study where they list the happiest, they have a chart with the happiest, how much happiness every activity gives people. And I literally ordered an iPhone case with that chart on it so I can look at the data when I'm deciding what to do with things. So I'm like the nerdiest, like I'm, I'm maybe one of the nerdiest people, you know, anybody's encountered. And I think when I was single, like a lot of nerds, I'm like, well, what do I do to, you know, I'm heterosexual to, you know, attract women. And I'm like, okay, well, I got to, you know, tone it down, be less nerdy, uh, be, you know, like, you know, get rid of the glasses, get, get like, you know, stop talking about the charts and the tables and the math and like, you know, learn, talk more about uh, what you're, you're, you're taught that uh, the average woman is into. And I think the data suggests the exact opposite, like nerd it up, go all in on who you are, and then you'll just be polarizing. But you don't in dating. You don't want to be like average to people. You want to be like the extreme, something that's uh, the most, the most appealing. Well, because you're not optimizing for total area under the curve, are you? You only yeah, need a no. couple of winners. And yeah, and exactly. And you no, know, well, I like how you think a couple of winners. Well, you, you've got to <laughs> so have a variety, I'm right? Polyamorous. <laughs> no, I'm monogamous, so I was just looking for one winner. But uh, uh, but I yeah, and my uh, girlfriend. Literally, she was uh, talking to her friends and they're like, what's your type? And everyone's going through their type, like tall, dark and handsome, this, that. And she's like, my type is nerdy. <laughs> and, like that was her type. And she's not even that nerdy herself. Her type was nerdy. And then, you know, and here I am 
if I had not played off my nerdiness, I wouldn't have, have had a chance. And I think the, the thing that the other big dating thing is you got to put yourself out there way more. Uh, so they've done these studies on like what happens when people of different attractiveness or desirability ratings message someone else on, on an online dating site. So like what happens when a one messages 10 on an online dating site? And before I saw the data, I'm like, this is a bloodbath. This is like a one asking out of 10. I mean, or message 10, we're talking about like a one in a million, a one in a billion, like, come on, like that, that's not going to happen. And the data says for a heterosexual man, one asking out a heterosexual 10, it's like 14%. And for a heterosexual woman asking out a, one ask, going after a heterosexual man, it's like 30%. So like when you actually do the math, the key to getting, like, if you if you want to date out of your league, which I don't necessarily recommend, because I also have in a section how physical conventional attraction is the most overvalued thing in the in the dating market. But let's be honest, everybody's trying to like everybody is curious, how can I date someone who's way more beautiful or way more desirable than me? And I think it's a combination of being an extreme version of yourself and then asking tons of people out. Uh, because like if you have a 14% chance on one go, then you actually do the math. If you ask like 30 people out, you have like a 98% chance. So like all you got to do is just keep on going after it. And a lot of people are going to be like, no, 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 no. And eventually uh, you're going to get your, your yes. And then there are, yeah, there, there are other things. I could keep going. There are well, what what was the insight around physical attractiveness and happiness? Yeah. So they've done studies of like 11,000 couples and they tried to predict what, uh, what predicts romantic happiness. So Samantha Joel led, the, led this study. Uh, and it's like the big, it's like a revolutionary study of romantic happiness. They've, they use machine learning models. There are 86 scientists studying it, uh, like 11,000 couples, they had hundreds of variables, like anything you could, could consider a test. And the first thing is it's very hard in general to predict who's happy. Like the predictive models are just way worse than you might imagine. It's not like uh, predicting, I don't know, predicting like the weather tomorrow or something. It's like predicting the weather in like three years. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's harder than you'd, than you'd guess. But that said, the things that that, that do have at least some predictive power, whether, I, whether I'm happy with someone else, whether a particular person has someone else, the qualities, the other person that seem to have some predictive power are like these psychological variables. So secure attachment style, growth mindset, conscientiousness, satisfaction with life uh kind of like good psychological variables and the things that don't have that have like basically no predictive power are a lot of superficial things so conventional attractiveness or uh, the height of your partner uh the, the particular occupation of your partner uh many things like that and so all yeah, of the things that, that online apps that optimize for yeah. on the front end yeah yeah so like so yeah so it, it, I think like the, ma the major insight from the data on, on dating and romance is there's just a total disconnect between what people are trying to, like what people are swiping for or trying to uh, date and what actually makes people happy. Uh, you know, will people change based on knowing that? I don't know. Uh, I think it may be coded in our DNA that we're drawn to like beauty and, you know, height and status and uh but like if it, if you can i really do recommend uh overruling some of those instincts because they're really not a path 
uh, to long-term happiness. And like the other thing is you have to think is that the competition for these traits is so enormous that like, even if you win over someone, like if you, if you win over someone who is this, you know, great beauty or a woman, every, every woman's there, I think the data is 85% of women, or I don't remember the exact number have like six foot or above on Bumble or whatever it is. It's some insane. Which I think is only 14% of men in the U S yeah. 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 And it's like, and like, uh, so the competition for these people are, are is ferocious, and you have to think that if you, first of all, if you try to date these people, you may spend a huge percent of your life single and complaining that you're single. Like I think a lot of people who are perpetually single, they're trying to date the small number of people that everybody's trying to date. Uh, and number two, if you do win them over, you may find that they are like that there's a reason that they were single, even though they have all these traits that everybody's desiring. So maybe their psychological traits are a little bit uh, subpar. Well, I would love uh, to really see, I would love to see the um, physical characteristics mapped with the psychological traits. You know, what are the correlates between our taller people on average, more conscientious or more industrious or oh, yeah. more balanced? Because that would be fascinating to see because it, it could be, it actually could be that, in order to be with someone who's hot, you need to sacrifice being with someone who's psychologically... It's probably not likely, right? They're probably pretty just randomly spread. Well, but that could be the case. I think if you're not hot and you want to date someone hot, then you probably do have to sacrifice. <laughs> yeah. well, you know, so, if you're like... If you're hot yourself, then you're probably like, okay, you probably, you know, it's probably... It's somewhat of a market... Uh, you're probably in, in better in better. You shape, can always yeah. uh, date across and down. Yeah. Well, the the interesting thing there is what what you're kind of saying is similar to what John Berger says in uh, Make the First Move, where it's 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 not lowering your standards, it's changing what your standards consist of. Because what you're saying is that what you think your standards should be aren't what they should be. You're optimizing for the wrong parameters. What you're optimizing for is something like height and job title and a bunch of things which aren't going to impact the thing that you ultimately want, which is long-term relationship happiness. What you need to do is reset that. And by doing that, you actually open up an entire new market, which is less competitive, potentially untapped, and significantly more linear between where you are and where you want to be in terms of happiness. Yeah, but nobody wants to hear that advice. No, it's shit, like, it's shit dating me. advice. How do I get the hot yeah. person? How do I get the, <laughs> do I get the fitty? Which I told you, the way to get the hot person is to be an extreme version of yourself and ask out lots of people. And the oh, oh, the other thing I didn't say is take advantage of similarity. So uh, people are incredibly drawn. This is also shown in, da in uh, dating apps to people who are similar to themselves. Like on every trait you can imagine. So race, uh, people are drawn to people who are similar to themselves, uh, religion, uh, like height, height, height to some degree, uh, even like college, people don't just want to date someone of a similar education level. They like show a bonus to someone who went to, the, to their exact same university, uh, even if it's like relative to someone in a sim so similar ranked university uh, that you know, there, there's, and then, oh, my favorite example of this is we're 11.3% more likely on online dating apps to match with someone who shares our initials. 
which is so ridiculous. Like, come on, initials, like sharing your initials is not the path to long-term happiness. But so, the, so I think there's a lot of irrationality in that, but you can take advantage of that in that try, like if, if you share your initials with someone, definitely ask them out because you have this bonus. All <laughs> oh, right. You've got like the multiplier. That's the 11.4% yeah. multiplier on that. Oh, well, she's a, she's a nine out of 10. But she does have my initials, so if I take that, she's actually only re- she's like a, a a parameter adjusted eight and a half with when we account for the the name bias. But yeah, and I think I learned this in my single life, where I am Jewish, and but I'm I'm not religious at all, and I always pride myself on not caring about uh, religion. Like I would be happy to date somebody of any religious backgrounds, any cultural background, whatever. It's not something that I view as very, very important to me. But I did kind of notice that the quality of my dates were always higher with the Jewish community than the non-Jewish community because of this similarity bias. So even if I don't care, like even if it's not a preference for me, I can take advantage of the fact that it's a preference for other people. And I should probably be more likely to go to like a singles event for Jewish people than a singles event for non-Jewish people. Because in the non-Jewish singles event, I'm going to be a five or whatever. But yeah, the Jewish single that Jewish event, privilege, I'm man. Jewish seven. privilege in the Jewish no, event. I know no, what you mean. It's, it's, it's Chinese privilege in the Chinese event. Yeah. It's Asian privilege in the, yeah, I understand. Yeah, And it's like, it's true for Asian males as well. There, I talk about that there's a huge prejudice against Asian males in online dating. Uh, but there's much less prejudice prejudice from asian women in this in, in this group so yeah it's a, it's a privilege that like you know yeah again my major advice is care less about these superficial things and just try to find someone who's like really nice and can make you happy and if you can get to that mindset you're gonna find dating way way easier uh but if you want to date like a hot person then you have to use all these strategies and and everything that i think are, are justified in the data use your privilege uh, is is one of them. <laughs> <laughs> what about what makes people happy then? You looked at that. Yeah, so uh, what makes people happy? I've, I've, I, there's, I, I've read like a thousand studies on happiness and a lot of them, even ones that are really famous, I'm like, these studies aren't that good. They, they like interview like a hundred undergraduate students and they're like, so what makes you happy? I'm like, like, how, how should I know that these hundred undergrad students or anything like anybody else, you, you're not like doing experiments. It's just was very underwhelming. But there are these new projects, which are really cool. They're called experience sampling projects. And they basically ping people on their smartphones and they say, who, what are you doing? Who are you with? And how happy are you? And they built a data set of like three million happy points. The biggest one, mappiness, George McCarran, Susanna Brado, three million happy, uh, data points. And... There are all these cool studies that I get so excited because I just, as I said, very, very nerdy. So I'd like read one of these studies. They're like, people are happier. The same person do the same activity. The same people are happier when they're in nature by a lake or they're happier when their environment is beautiful or they're happiest going for a hike or having sex is the number one happy activity. And I'm kind of like, I was telling my friends this because I was working on the, the chapter. And I'm like, you know, did you hear about this cool study? And they're like, do we need scientists to tell us this? <laughs> like, that's so obvious. Like all these things that you're saying are painfully obvious. And I think there's profundity in the obviousness of the research on happiness, uh, which is that the things that make you happy, like if you look, I have the happiness activity chart from Alex Bryson and George McCarran, 
uh, in one of my, and that's what I recommend people get as an iPhone case or hang it on your wall or whatever. And you look at that chart, it's almost like a chart from our hunter gatherer days. It's like people are ha happy, like, you know, yeah, ha having sex, taking walks, hunting and fishing, uh, gardening, like just like these very outdoors, simple activities. And the things that are really low are these like very modern things like waiting on a line, uh, dealing with a bureaucracy, working, uh, uh, internet, social media, very, very low, computer games, really, really low. When you actually ping people, how happy are they? They rank very low. So I think it's good to keep in mind like the simplicity of the things that make people happy. And if you're not happy, uh, oh, I, I end the book, I say, what's the data-driven answer to life uh, based on these 3 million you know, happiness points and, and, and all this, this new data. And I go, the data-driven answer to life is to be with your love on an 80 degree and sunny day, overlooking a beautiful body of water, having sex. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and like, which is okay, not rocket science. It's not like they've, you know, scientists have found some like gel you put on yourself or some website you visit. That's like the cure to happiness. It's these very old fashioned, simple things. And I do recommend to people who are not happy, like think about how far your life is from that, those simple things that from the data-driven answer to life. So like how, how much time are you spending in nature? How much time are you spending on, on the internet in comparison? Uh, how much time are you spending with the people who make you happy are friends and romantic partners and like everybody else just doesn't make you happy. You so had a... You, you had a list of underrated activities, the things that tend to make people happier than they'd predict. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exhibitions, yeah. museums, libraries, sports and exercise, drinking alcohol, gardening and shopping or errands. And then the overrated yeah. activities that make people less happy than they think. Sleeping, resting, relaxing, computer games, watching TV, eating and browsing the internet. I'm surprised, and I, I was really surprised when I looked at the list of activities, that playing with pets wasn't higher. It's like maybe 15, I think. But dude, if you put a dog in this room, I'm not doing anything for the rest of the day. Like that's me, that's me and the dog. Someone, oh, you want to have some sex? It's like, no, sorry, I'm with the dog at the moment. So again, there's individual variation in Wait, this. Having, ha having sex with the person. No, don't do that. <laughs> so um, drinking alcohol was an interesting one. And I think that you talk about this. It's not necessarily just about what the activity does, but it's about what you're doing while you're in the activity, right? So drinking yeah. alcohol is often associated it's uh, socializing you're spending time with friends you're having a conversation maybe you're also at a show or a comedy event or watching a gig or something like that yeah i mean drinking alcohol what you're getting with the pet example is there probably is individual variation in these and you don't have to although i think a danger with happiness is we exaggerate how much individual variation there is so there have been studies where they've they've compared introverts and extroverts and they say how much happier they are when they're by themselves or with other people. And both introverts and in extroverts get the exact same boost from being with other people than being by themselves. Even though if you ask introverts, they're like, yeah, yeah, you know, I really like being by myself. I really like being by myself. So I think there's a danger. Like I'd, I'd, be, I'd be a little wary if I were you. Like I'd ask you to actually track your happiness and see if you're getting as much happiness from pets as you might think because I think we do tell ourselves these stories tell ourselves these stories that are not always correct and, and that we're like unique and uh so I I I, I don't know I I mean yeah I, I think there's also different time spent with pets so sometimes like if you're just like 
you know, run, like, uh, yeah, like petting them, playing catch with them. That's one thing. If you're cleaning up their crap. <laughs> Well, you've uh, got it's it's got to be spread across time, right? One thing that I thought that was interesting is there a tension between happiness and meaning. So there's this Roy Baumeister study that or paper that you've probably read about the tension that you have between these two different things. And there's a lot of things that we can do in the moment which makes us feel happy, sort of more on the hedonic side, but long term doesn't necessarily create meaning. Did you think about this? I did. Like I think, uh. Yeah, you know, like, for example, work scores very low on happiness. And I think, you know, I don't know the answer from that is just quit your job and yeah, live or, in or, nature. Okay, so live in, yeah, I don't, th- I don't, and, and you know, the, the study that I, that I referenced, mappiness, uh, isn't following people over three years and being like, you know, th- you, you see kind of the in the moment happiness and you don't necessarily see as much the, uh, you know, the long term things. I do think it's just, it's just you can I think from these studies, you just can nudge yourself a little bit uh in the direction of things that make people happy. That that's kind of wise without sacrificing everything that's meaningful to you. So don't, you know, uh you know, if you if you if you read uh, you know, my don't trust your gut or you read these studies, uh I don't and, and then yeah, you immediately quit your job and move to a lake. Like I'd be like, that may be taking the advice a little too uh seriously. I you know, I I think think more clearly but anybody who reads these studies and then the next weekend is deciding between sitting at home and playing computer games or going for a walk with your friends by the water and and is kind of uncertain like i'd really recommend you went with your friends on the walk by the water uh just based on the data so what did social media use do to people's happiness you looked at that in depth yeah yeah so so there are so up in the mappiness study, the single there are 26 leisure activities. The single lowest scoring leisure activity is using social media, uh, which already says, wow, that's probably not so good for you. And there have been there was a famous randomized controlled trial where they paid people to stop using Facebook. They randomly uh, paid a group of people to stop using Facebook and they reported an enormous decline in depressive symptoms. So I think there really is pretty, it's almost a cliche to say it, but there really is evidence that social media can make people miserable for the obvious reason that uh, it makes you feel like crap about your life. Uh, you uh, you know, if, if you're seeing on Facebook, like the curated version of everybody else's life, uh, I actually, in my first book, Everybody Lies, I talk a lot about that and the difference between like so- social media and real life and Google searches and on uh, social media, when people describe their husbands, it's my husband is the best, the greatest, so cute and adorable. Uh, and that's like public, everyone's seeing it. And when it's on, when they're searching, my husband is, it's like my husband is a jerk, annoying, mean, uh, like a totally different view Not of having marriage. sex with me. Not having sex with me, yeah. Uh, so uh, there's, so like social media, like, it's a cliche to say it, but it's just so true. It really is a dangerous uh, game to play uh, from, from a happiness perspective. Why do you think it is that we're so bad at working out what makes us happy? Well, I think the world's trying to trick us. Uh, like, there are people, I mean, social media, we're up against forces more powerful than we are, which are doing all these A-B tests to try to make the most addictive uh, products possible. And... 
like, you know, I talk about money and happiness and there definitely is a relationship between money and happiness, but it's a pretty small one. Uh, so like, for example, uh, there's a study by Matthew Killingsworth, doubling your income consistently has about the effect, same effect on unhappiness. So going from 40,000 to $80,000 a year has the same effect of going from 4 million to $8 million a year has the same effect of going from, you know, like, so basically you're in this kind of treadmill where, uh, you need to keep on raising it by more and more to get a happiness boost. Uh, now of course, like at, I sound like a conspiracy theorist and these ideas are almost so cliched, but they're just true. You know, advertisements don't want you to think that money doesn't matter. They want you to think that you need, uh, you know, fan, you know, you need the fanciest products. And, uh, so they're kind of, they're, they're, they're kind of telling you, brainwashing you a little bit, uh, on the things that, that will make you happy that, you know, th there are also been studies that, uh, the purchases that make people happy and it's very rarely stuff. It's usually vacations, travel, uh, gives the biggest boost to happiness. When you kind of ask people, what are you doing and, and how happy you are and, and what, what product are you using? Uh, the only products that really are giving people happiness are trips uh, and uh, other experiences uh, frequently with their romantic partner or their friends. It's like museums, uh, tours, stuff like that. Yeah, so, so things like that could legitimately give you happiness. They're, they're usually not even that expensive. Uh, but when people are using a fancy new electronic uh, or, you know, wearing an Armani suit, uh, they're not really getting a big happiness boost. So I think that's an example. Why are we wrong? Well, like Armani probably spends more time advertising than like a nat than uh, the Grand Canyon does. Uh, so, uh, you know, like, yeah, if you turn on the TV, you're not really seeing many advertisements. Have you thought of taking a camping trip in the Grand Canyon with your friends? Uh, because Grand Canyon is a nonprofit. They're not even making money. Uh, so uh, it's 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 they're, they're, Yeah. So I think we're getting kind of uh, the wrong messages about uh, the path to happiness. What is it? There was that famous study that said above $70,000 a year, money has no impact on happiness. It seems like what you're saying here is that that's bullshit. It's not true, but it's 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 true in that the effects level off a lot. So it's not literally true that you reach seventy five thousand dollars, then money doesn't improve things at all. Uh, but going from uh, you know forty thousand to eighty thousand is the same as going from eighty thousand to one hundred sixty thousand. So it's it it does it it is leveling off. It's just it doesn't level off to zero. There is also some evidence that. Like once you reach about eight million dollars, you also get a boost. Uh, and I think the, <laughs> what's that? The, I think the reason for that is that then you're reaching a point, and uh, I've started since I moved to New York. I've met a lot of people uh, in that camp of eight million dollars and well beyond. Uh, and I think they're at a level where they literally have everything taken care of them for them. And you see the happiness activity chart. Uh, that that I include in Don't Trust Your Gut. And like there are all these miserable activities, you know, standing on lines, uh, working. Housework. <laughs> uh, housework. Like they really don't make people happy. And when you reach $8 billion uh, net worth or beyond, you don't have to spend much of your life doing those things. That's the point uh, at which the driver or the assistant can stand in line for you when the chef yeah. can cook you breakfast, when the housekeeper can clean up, blah, blah. Yeah. And then you really can spend most of your life just 
by a beach having sex. Uh, so. <laughs> in, eight, in 80 degree weather. All right, so talking yeah, about yeah. people that have stupid amounts of wealth, what's the best way to become rich? <laughs> so I actually, there's this study I read. Again, most times I read a study, I'm just like, that's like, I don't believe the study or I'm like, it's like they make these subtle points. You know, like if you read any academic study, like usually they're just like making these very subtle interactions, like the theoretical point that only the research you care about. But occasionally you read a, a, a sentence in a study that kind of blows your mind. And I was reading a study is from the entire universe of taxpayers, American taxpayers, and they analyzed who's in the top 0.1%. So it's people making uh, $1.5 million a year. So these are people approaching the level where you can actually just be happy with how much money you have. <laughs> and they said that the typical rich American is the owner of a regional business, such as an auto dealership or beverage distributor. And I read that. I'm just like, what? <laughs> like, who thinks of an auto dealer owner? Like auto dealers are just like these annoying, like people with greasy suits who try to sell us like things we don't need. You're not really thinking of them as like rich people. And then beverage distributor, I didn't even know what that was. Uh, and <laughs> it turns out that, uh, so like the, the, the likely, so there are a couple of points this. One is you have to own something to get rich by and large. So like if you look at the richest Americans, members of the top 0.1%, I think about 84% of them are making their money primarily by owning something, not by paying paid a salary. So there are some people who are just like get paid a ton of money. Superstar lawyers by, by maybe or stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, occasionally, but usually it's people who are owning something. Uh, and then you want to have like some sort of, a good, and then you want to go in a, a good field. So there are all these fields that are awful. Uh, they've done studies of the quickest field businesses, like that go out of the the, biz, the field where the business goes out of uh, business quickest. And like number one was record store. Uh, the average record store lasts two point five years. Uh, in comparison, the average dentist office lasts nineteen point five years. And basically, the problem is everybody wants to own a record store. And there, there are all these movies made about record stores. Uh, like there have been. A whole bunch of record store movies. I think probably every time some that movie comes out, everyone's like, I'm going to quit my job and start a record store. And it's just like not a good path. And like toy stores, an awful business. Clothing stores, awful business. Uh, uh, so there's some other ones. And But then there are things you basically want a local, you want a local monopoly where like, so auto dealerships, they have like legal protections where you kind of have franchise rights to service a particular uh, car company in your local region. And that's a big advantage in business if you have legal protections about against some random person coming in and stealing your business. And I think now, so I think you can't really read this, this that and say, okay, now I'll just start a local dealer. Now I'll just start an auto dealership because the whole point of auto dealerships is you're not allowed to start a new one and compete with these, these people. Uh, but... Uh, I think you want to be thinking that principle of like, what's my local monopoly that allows, like, that allows me to avoid someone just, you know, stealing my entire business or offering a lower price or, or anything. And even I talk about in the book that like independent creatives may be a better bet than I had thought, uh, being kind of like what you're doing, like a podcast host or what I'm doing, a writer. And it's, there are like a surprise, I was surprised by how many people are 
entering the top 1% or even the top 0.1% as independent creatives. It's still a long shot. Most people aren't. But it's not like as big a long shot as I thought. And I think the reason for that is you have a local monopoly. So like if Chris, if, you know, as you're building your brand, you build a fan base. And then like everybody, I could be on 20 different podcasts. Well, your fans are going to listen to your podcast and watch. I, I, you could ask me the same questions. You could be like, someone else could be, you know, should I play with my pet or uh, have sex? And, and uh, the exact same questions, but you're going to have a, an edge because you've built a fan base. Uh, and similarly, you know, I've written some books and people, I already have like people who bought, liked Everybody Lies, my first book, and now they're going to give me kind of the benefit of the doubt and uh, don't trust your guts. You have, you do have this kind of a little bit of a moat as a, a creative uh, that like, I think it's a better business than like pest control or something. <laughs> uh, <you laughs> or know, a record where, store. Yeah, yeah, well, record store, yeah, but like even even some boring businesses like pest control, the data says like basically nobody's getting rich from pest control businesses. And the problem with being in the pest control business is you don't, you're, there's no way to build a local monopoly. Like you're basically competing against everybody and everybody's just Googling for pest control and you have to, any profit you have, you're going to give away in, in ads on Google to try to get higher up on the list. Like nobody's like, you know, there's no name in pest control or there's no there's no legal protection. Uh, I really no like Seth's, Seth's pest control because of the personality that he brings when he's getting rid of my cockroaches. Yeah, yeah nobody, yeah, nobody. And and like, you don't even have, have that many repeat customers anyway. So there's just like not, Yeah. Yeah. it's really hard to escape the perfect competition in that field. So like to escape perfect competition, you either need like a legal protection, a legal protection like auto dealerships have, you need a, like some sort of personal context being like really deep in a field or you need like a fan base well, and I a think brand. It, uh, yeah, it's a unique way to imprint a difficult to replicate competitive advantage. And you yeah. see this with uh, PTs. So my old housemate, Lewis, is a PT uh, and he moved, I think, to two or three different gyms in the time that he was living with me. And these gyms were three miles to one of them and then another five miles to a different one in around the city and i was like dude there is no i felt really bad i was like what if he loses all of his clients tons of his clients stayed with him like hang on a second you're talking about someone maybe adding two hours a week onto their commute just to go and train with you two or three times and people were prepared to go brand new facility different gym different place different parking different route and they stuck with him because it's a very personal experience, right? People aren't, you're not just being competed out of the market with this very transactional sort of pest control, get rid of my cockroaches thing. It's something very, very specific. Uh, speaking of online coaching, what was that analysis about the best way to sell a product online if you were doing like a, oh, se yeah. a seminar or something? Yeah, they did an analysis of like, uh, is it called Amazon Live? Where they, where people are kind of making a pitch to try to sell their product, and it was a really amazing study. They used artificial intelligence to translate all the pitches into like the facial expression. They they analyzed the facial expression of everyone making their pitch, and they had all kinds of other data about the pitch, and they knew how much of the product actually sold. And they found that the best way to sell your product is basically a poker face. So like if you're angry or like depressed or like sad or like you know, then like, yeah, everyone's just like, I don't want to watch this person. But too many people selling their products have smiles, like these goofy smiles on their face. 
and are too excited and that actually backfires. So there's like this sweet spot where you're not showing too much happiness or too much sadness, a poker face. Uh, I think they say, the authors of the study say, uh, having a poker face instead of a smile is about twice as valuable as free shipping. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, uh, which is which is kind of counterintuitive. You don't really think like, uh, you know, I think everybody's instinct is be like really excited for what you have. And it, I think they're, you know, the, the study didn't get into like the, the nitty gritty. I'm sure if you were had the poker face for like an hour, everyone would be like, show me a smile, like lighten up, relax, show some happiness. But it does show the danger that there is a danger in selling things of being too excited by your product and kind of being a little more even keeled uh, and, and honest uh, can uh, can help. What about some of the myths to do with entrepreneurial success? Oh, yeah. So entrepreneurial success, there's this famous idea that entrepreneurs are young. So like Mark Zuckerberg started Facebook when he was 19. Uh, Steve Jobs was 20, started Apple. Uh, Bill Gates, 19, when he started Microsoft. These are kind of the most famous entrepreneurs in the world. And uh, I think people think uh, they're also the most famous entrepreneurs featured in me the media. So they've done studies of the entrepreneurs in magazines and like the median age is 27 or something. So people just love telling the stories of these young people. When you actually look at the data of the entire universe of entrepreneurs, uh, the average successful entrepreneur is 42. And the odds of an entrepreneur succeeding increase until the age of 60, uh, they, which shocks me. Like you don't think of a 60 year old, like that's the, the total opposite of a successful entrepreneur. And the other, and like what it turns out is there's pretty much a formula for being a successful entrepreneur. You just get really deep into the nitty gritty of a field for many, many years. And then you branch out on your own when you're ready. Uh, which again goes against a lot of stereotypes. A lot of stereotypes like just come from the outside knowing nothing when you're 18. It's not true. Like if you want to be an entrepreneur, the best path is like take it slow, under learn about a field, work as an employee, prove your worth as an employee, and then like learn some. You'll learn something very particular about that field, and then you really know what to do uh, when you're ready. So, well, yeah, it's, uh, it's such a compelling narrative that outside is edge, right? The Elon Musk, he never did a thing before. So from first principles, he's going to do whatever. And you go, well, yeah, but the guys that Elon got to design batteries have probably yeah. spent their entire lives designing batteries. You know, he didn't yeah. get, he didn't get some dude that did woodwork for the last, <laughs> yeah. for the last 20 years. And uh, you, yeah, talk, think, you talk about uh, Paul Graham as well in that, what is it, the marginal marginal edge or something as well? Yeah, yeah power of the marginal. That's Paul it. Graham had this, es this essay, and I'm a huge Paul Graham fan, but he had this essay like, that's an advantage to being a bad employee because if you're a good employee, you're not going to fit in an entrepreneurship. And it's not true in the data at all. The best entrepreneurs like earn the, in the 99.9th percentile of income before they start their business. Uh, so... Uh, like, I think a problem, a problem with understanding how the world works is like some ideas are almost too compelling that they fool us. Like we want them to believe, we want to believe them too much. So everybody wants to believe that, you know, oh, tomorrow I can just like wake up and design a new car, or, uh, you know, design some new chemical that's going to do something really wild or, uh, you know, there are all kinds of examples you could imagine. And it's kind of like. That's not really how the world works. Uh, and it's it's dangerous to think the world works there because I think a lot of people screw up their lives uh, 
you know, based on some of these ideas. That's uh, it's much less compelling though, right? Think about how sticky some of these stories are. This the stickiness of the story about the average age of a founder in uh, an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley is twenty seven and a half years old or something. That that's just so much more worthy of being pushed around than it's your mid forties because that's what everybody would have thought. You talk about this, you say it's the the counter counter intuitive narrative. Yeah. And it's so bizarre. Think about the fact that the thing that everybody expects to be the case. Work hard in one field, get unbelievable specific knowledge, then branch out on your own once you've got to the complete top, having been a very good employee, and wait, wait a long time until you've got tons of experience. Like The fact that the media has managed to, to convince us that that is now a revolutionary story, it's like, <laughs> yeah. we, we were the idiots. But, but, but yeah, I, I think, but I think like listeners to this podcast, like you can overrule that like i think when people have seen that they've been like oh yeah like they've made different decisions based on that and you can just look at these charts and it's like something about looking at these charts just clears away the noise a little bit where i'm just like okay like now i i know that i'm just being misled by the media and i'm gonna just look at these charts and remind myself uh when i get these one-off stories that are uh you know try like meant to confuse me and and so sticky so uh, i think you can I, I agree that it's like it's harder to get these ideas out out there, but I think a lot of people have told me from reading that section that they are like adopting more of that mindset. They're not going to quit their job tomorrow and try to do something they've never tried before. And some of them are using this in an optimistic way, where there are a lot of people who are forty five years old and they've been an employee their entire life uh, and they've had success in that field, but they're just like I'm too. It's too late. Like entrepreneurs are you know, do it in their 20 years or, younger than me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like I, how am I going to compete against all these youngins? And I think they'll be particularly drawn to the, this idea because now they can be like, well, now, now I got to think about, do I want to go off on my own and start my own business? How can people hack look? Uh, yeah. So there are all these studies The the best way to learn about luck is the art world. Because the art world is so much luck. Like there are all these like these depressing studies of what it takes to like of like what why a particular piece of art is really successful. There's so much randomness in it. Uh, but there are also these patterns that allow people to kind of allow these random opportunities to uh, come to them. So, for example, there have been studies that the quantity of art. Uh, of, of art someone makes is a massive predictor of how successful they are. So just putting a lot of work out in the world is like a, a, a massive predictor of success. And why is that? Well, because there's so much randomness in what particular work catches on, you just got to kind of flood the market and let luck find you. Uh, you know, if it's, if, if there's a, if, if every piece of which piece wins is luck, then I want to be the one with a thousand pieces, not 10 pieces. Right. Because I have, uh, you know, a hundred more opportunities to get lucky. Uh, and that's been found in many, many fields, this idea of kind of just putting more work into the world and allowing yourself to get more lucky, applying to more jobs, uh, asking more people out in dating. Like just, yeah, it's it's a crapshoot. But when it's a crapshoot, you want more lottery tickets. Uh, and the other thing that's been found, which is really cool, uh, in a study of a whole bunch of painters, uh, they were trying to predict what painter rises to the top and they're like the biggest predictor by far is how they present their work. 
and the ones who don't make it present their work to the same place, the same gallery over and over again. And the ones who do, they're like bumblebees. They're just like constantly, they're just like traveling everywhere. You, I can, I'll present there, I'll present there, I'll present there. Like anyone will have them, they go and occasionally they just stumble on some big break. Uh, and that's pretty profound. Uh, I think a lot of people make the mistake of just like not exposing themselves widely enough uh, to and exposing yourself widely can dramatically increase your chances of getting that lucky break. I was going to say, what do you think is the lesson for people that aren't artists? I think it's, there's probably a lot of similarity in that uh, the, the mistake of the artists who are presenting in the same gallery over and over again is they already didn't get the break there. So don't assume if you haven't gotten your break there, then you're going to get it next year or two years or three years. Uh, so kind of stagnating in a place where you're not rising or not where nothing much good is happening. Uh, you got to kind of, particularly when you're young, you got to travel more widely uh, to find uh, to find a break, I would say, would be the lesson I take from it. And uh, like traveling to places where you're more likely to get your break as well. Uh, you know, like uh, met many of the artists who didn't get their break were, presenting in countries that aren't known for discovering artists. And similarly, many, you know, computer, compute tech people aren't in Silicon Valley. That, that may be, you know, a mistake. Going to, going to the place where you're more likely to get a break, I think, can be uh, very valuable. What was that thing that you learned about the Mona Lisa? Oh, yeah. That the, the Mona Lisa, I didn't realize this. I read a book, Vanish Smile, that the Mona Lisa was just an ordinary painting but then there was like this heist and uh, everybody was trying to understand what happened, uh, why the Mona Lisa was stolen. And it was like a worldwide phenomenon. Uh, people, the, 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 people thought Pablo Picasso had stolen it. People thought JP Morgan had stolen it. It turned out to just be like a low level employee had stolen it. It was underwhelming. But the heist gave it so much attention that now it was the most famous painting. So we, everyone thinks the Mona Lisa is the best painting. But it's not really. It's just happened to be uh, the painting that uh, got stolen. Stolen but, in the right place at the right time. Yeah, but the point of that is if you have a thousand paintings, you have more chances for one of them to be stolen. <laughs> uh, you know, like, like it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty clear that just working forever to get your one piece exactly right is not the best strategy. Having lots of pieces and then allowing one of them to get lucky is a better strategy. There's that famous uh, photography class study that was done on this as well, right? That two groups were split up. One was told to take as many photos as they wanted and then to submit one at the end. The other group was told that they needed to work on one shot for the entirety of the course. When you compare them at the end, the group that's taken a ton of shots has just iterated so much more effectively. And yeah, the, the learning by doing thing ties back into what we were saying before about working hard and deep one particular field sticking at it for a long time like the unsexy stuff what was that thing you looked at um how to become a good athlete if you don't have the genetics oh, yeah, to yeah. be one yeah, yeah it was just i i was obsessed with sports i still am obsessed with sports but uh i was interested in uh but i had no i had no talent uh i didn't have no talent i was a i i rose to be an okay high school baseball player but uh like i I didn't have, ta I, it was also just a, in, a, in a county where there were no good baseball players. The lofty heights like, of a yeah, small yeah, town like was, high school I was very, baseball player. Yeah, I was very far from being a great, a great player, but there's actually, uh, there's actually an interesting way to think about uh, genetics, the genetic edge in sports, which is uh, 
like if something's really genetic, there are lots of identical twins because identical twins share a hundred percent of their genes. Uh, so there are going to be a lot more genetic identical twins in that sport than even br- like fraternal twins or just normal brothers or sisters. Uh, so like basketball is dominated by identical twins. I know it's because I'm a big Stanford basketball fan, and we like suck for ten years, and then we recruit a set of identi- seven foot identical twins, and we're great again. So it was the Collins twins first, and then it was the Lopez twins. It's like it's it's it it works predictably. Uh, it's it saves our our, our basketball program, and. Uh, in the course of basketball, uh, they're, they're, it's just like dominated to a degree very, very few other sports are uh, by identical twins, which shows that basketball is incredibly genetic, in part because height is one of the most genetic traits, and each inch doubles your chances of making the NBA, uh, which is really cool. Like, actually, like a 6'1 person has twice the chance of a 6-foot person, and then a 6'9 person has twice the chance of a 6'8 person, a 7'2 person has twice the chance of a 7'1 person, like throughout the distribution. Uh, That's got to tail off at some point, or else. Well, we don't. We don't know. Uh, there's not a big enough sample for like eight, eight foot. It, it, yeah, it it probably does because I think like beyond a certain point, it's usually a disease which massively lowers your coordination. So like a thyroid problem, people like who are seven five or above frequently, it's a a, a, gro- a thyroid a, lar- a thyroid issue that leads to that level of growth. Uh, but then there are certain sports like. Uh, they're not as exciting as being a basketball player, but like equestrianism and diving, uh, and I have a whole chart of them, but where there, there's like never, there have never been identical twin Olympic diving and equestrian athletes. And if you actually do the math, it's pretty clear that that means that the genetics just aren't that big a factor, uh, in those sports, uh, which is why a lot of rich people kind of who had uh, kids like me who want to be athletes, they're like, yeah, go into equestrianism uh, and you can become a great equestrian athlete. And it's totally true. There's very little genetics. We know, we know that you're not built for athletics, so let's try and yeah. weasel you into something. But yeah, d- diving's an interesting one too because uh, Adam Grant, uh, the professor at Warden who's written a lot of popular bi- books, uh, he became a, a very talented diver uh, and his coaches told him exactly what the data says, that like if you're nerdy, uh, he wants to be a basketball player and they're like, you're not talented enough, but you are very disciplined and hardworking and passionate. Uh, so diving's a good sport for you. <laughs> and the data totally, uh, you know, totally justifies that, that that's uh, really where you want to put your energy. What did you learn about parenting? That was so, this was something that I'd, I'd seen previously in a discussion and then to have it brought up in the data again was so interesting. Yeah, so... Uh, the overall effects of parents are like ways less than everybody thinks. Uh, and the, the studies of that are twins and adoptees. So if you like see, you know, identical twins adopted by different parents, they turn out shockingly similar. And then, uh, uh, uh and then, uh, people adopt, uh, adopted to the same parents end up not that similar at all. But then, so like, uh, so uh, parents in general matter very, very little, but there is evidence that the neighborhood you live in matters a lot. Uh, basically they've looked at tax records and, uh, compared and, and people who grow up in certain neighborhoods just do way better. And they've done all this clever math to prove that it's really causally certain neighborhoods are making them better. And the big uh, predictor of that, interestingly, is the adults in that neighborhood. So like adults that fill out a lot of census forms, 
if if you like live on a block with adults that live fill out a lot of census forms, your kids way more likely to have good outcomes. And you're kind of like, what the hell is like that's the randomest thing in the world. It's basically like good responsible adults. Uh, similarly, if girls move to neighborhoods with lots of female scientists, they're more likely to become uh, scientists themselves. Uh, so like one of the lessons I took from the data is you can outsource parenting a little bit. Like when you tell your kids to do something, they're just going to probably rebel against you because, you know, a lot of people think their parents are like the least cool people on the planet. But your friends, they're going to think they're pretty cool, <laughs> probably. Like if I think of my parents, friends, all of them like, yeah, those are, you know, there are periods where I thought my, my dad was pathetic and the biggest loser and whatever. But his friends are always like, yeah, they're awesome. So basically, you just got to you just got to pick friends that you want your kids to turn out to be like and put them in, in front of your kids uh, and that you may be shocked by how much of an impact uh, these people are having on your kids. It's so interesting the fact that the people that you live next door to are potentially going to have a bigger impact on your children than you do. Yeah. 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 It's weird. It's, it's wild. Weird. You don't really... Not even their kids, right? Not even that. It's not, don't worry yeah, about, yeah, oh, yeah, well, exactly. such and such is son is a he's a bit of a naughty boy and he doesn't really listen in class and it's like yeah but his dad's cool as fuck and he's a millionaire you're like just let little timmy go and play with him a lot yeah it reminds me of i don't know if you saw the book uh if you read the book rich dad poor dad yeah by robert kiyosaki uh, yeah yeah that's exactly that that his life was transformed by meeting this guy who he thought was way cooler than his dad could it not be like uh, cool dad uncool dad that might just be it yeah yeah uh, and yeah, and then and then like that transformed his life. That instead of kind of this traditional narrow path that he thought he was supposed to take of getting a lot of college degrees and like working for the government, he wanted to become an entrepreneur, like his uh, his rich dad, his friend's dad. So I didn't think about that. Well, what about that what far. about if his dad had been the rich dad and his friend's dad had been the poor dad? Robert would have probably grown up to be poor because he would have listened to the wrong person. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting to think about. I mean, that, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it, you can't exaggerate the extent to this. You know, some parents definitely do have big impacts on their kids. And sometimes kids do think their parents are really cool. But I think, uh, you know, that I, I think the parents are polarizing figures for kids, whereas like the neighbors tend to be universally uh, kind of cool. Like now, even looking back on it, like the parents in my neighborhood who I know weren't cool. Like when I was a kid, I thought they were really cool and cooler than my dad. <laughs> like, uh, you know, like one, one guy, he was just such a show off. He wasn't even a good basketball player, but he just like constantly be dribbling the ball between his legs and doing like weird moves. And I'm like, now looking back on it, I'm like, that guy was pathetic. Like trying to impress 10 year olds with his terrible basketball moves. But at the time I'm like, this guy's amazing. Maybe that's why I wanted to be a basketball player. Cause I grew up near this guy. <laughs> this lame basketball guy. What was it? Yeah. What was that thing about the odds of becoming a celebrity? Yeah, just that uh, there are more independent artists in the top 1% of earners than I would have guessed uh, because it does offer this local monopoly and trying to become an independent, like trying to be a podcast host or a writer or things like that. If you're young and you're willing to do the things that hack your hack luck to your advantage, uh, maybe not a crazy path. So, Yeah. Seth Stevens Davidowitz, ladies and gentlemen, if people want to keep up to date with what it is that you're doing, where should they go? I'll definitely buy Don't Trust Your Gut. Uh, and then uh, my website is sethsd.com.
I yeah. love it, man. I appreciate your work. I like the fact that someone who has the uh, data science chops to be able to ask all of the big questions that we want has decided to go and troll through whatever a thousand academic papers and a ton of data to do it. The, the, the book's brilliant. Everyone should go and, go and check it out. It'll be linked in the show notes below. Uh, and I'm looking forward to seeing what you do next. Thanks, Chris. How good was that? I absolutely love those insights from Seth. If you enjoyed the episode, then share it with a friend. The only way that this show grows is from people like you sharing it with other people like you. And obviously, make sure that you are subscribed or you're going to miss episodes every Monday, Thursday, and Saturday when they go up. Also, don't forget that you can get two weeks free access to Wondrium by going to wondrium.com slash modernwisdom. You can get a 15% discount on upgraded formulas test kit at upgradedformulas.com and the code MW15 at checkout. And you can get a free sample pack of all element flavors with your first box at drinklmnt.com slash modernwisdom. I'll see you next time.